kpfa.org. Uh, we'll take phone calls for a few more minutes here at KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno. And do encourage you to pledge online at the web as time permits because we still have a ways to go to make our goal for this drive. I'm Brian Edwards Teekert with Mitch Jezerich. Please stay tuned. It's a fabulous radio station and even more fun to listen to now that the fun drive is over. Woo! Since the war that birthed our nation, 1,315,341 women and men have been killed while serving in the U.S. military. Textbooks and politicians talk about major victories and defeats on the war front, but rarely do we hear from the individual men and women who won and lost those battles. In honor of soldiers, past and present, this Friday, May 28th at 7 p.m., Full Circle invites all veterans and active duty soldiers to call in and share your stories with your community and our listeners all over the world. Tune in to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, Friday nights at 7 p.m. on 94.1 KPFA. KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. to cover open book. I'm your host, producer Nina Serrano, and my guest today is mystery writer Susan Shirell. Her novel Grace was recently published by Workwoman's Press. Susan is an Oakland writer, and her book Grace is set in the Oakland, Berkeley area in the 1970s. Drugs, politics, protests, Black Panthers, Cointelpro, sex, and the search for love. The protagonist, Leah, is a UC Berkeley journalism student with a part-time job at the Golden Gate Raceway. Welcome, Susan Shirell, to Open Book. Thank you, Nina. Very happy to be here. Today, when I was on Amazon.com checking your book, I saw that it said, if you like this book, you'll like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stieg Larsons. And I was thinking, wow, I wonder what they see the link. And then I realized, well, the link is that these are both page turners. These are both well-written. These are books that are really saturated in their setting. And most of all, these are books with a political analysis that overrides the suspense, the thriller, the mystery of the mystery. And Susan, my wish is that your book, Grace, has the same international readership and a big fat juicy hollywood contract thank you so much nina may my wish come true may your wish come true susan could you read to us from your novel could you begin please with the prologue the introduction that sets it all up where the writer the author this fictitious character the author is talking to the reader okay this is the prologue Two Asian teenagers found Grace's body around 5 a.m. Monday morning. They had been fishing with their father near the makeshift pier down the hill from Golden Gate Racetrack when they noticed something tangled among the wooden posts that support the pier. 
one boy lowered himself into the water. He saw a body submerged, unearthly white, from the cold waters of the bay. Blonde hair tendrilled with seaweed. They ran to tell their father, A white woman! They kept repeating. That's how Joey told me the story later, when I found the courage to ask. A confused babble of voices, excitement and horror intermixed, hands gesticulating. They had reminded him of kids he had seen in Vietnam. Time has altered the details. She would appear to me that way in dreams through the years that followed. Sometimes I would awake in terror, seeing her body floating among the pilings. Later memory softened the image. She would have been rocked to the shore by the waves, passed beyond the violence of her murder. I was trying so hard in those years to take something from her death, something I could live by. That day, August 7th, 1972, cast its shadow over the rest of my life. I was 23 and had begun working at the racetrack that summer. I met Grace working there. Life at the track was exciting to me then, with an edge of seediness, which I mistook for glamour. Grace, too, despite her beauty, had a raw edge about her. I was intrigued by her combination of toughness and vulnerability. That particular Monday comes back to me as I write. The cordon of police cars at the bottom of the hill, the cops and plainclothes detectives running back and forth, shouting instructions to each other, and herding away the groups of onlookers that formed and reformed in clusters at the edge of their yellow marking tape. I felt an electrical tension in the air, a sense of fear masked by nervous chatter. I remember flashes of my emotions, a touch of nausea, a distracted sense that something awful was taking place, a grinding progression which I could not stop. Police were everywhere, shouting out orders, talking on walkie-talkies, pushing onlookers aside. They paid attention only to those of us who wore Golden Gate Fields uniforms. A black security guard moved too close to the yellow tape and was shoved aside by a large white cop. The two began swearing at one another. Suddenly, the black employee was handcuffed and pushed in the back of a police car. And so begins... Susan Shirell's novel, Grace, set in the 1970s in the Oakland-Berkeley area. Can you read us a little more? It's so intriguing, Susan. Time to get out of here, a man next to me said. I realized it was Freddie Corster, a young, nervous guy who was a hot walker for the trainers. Come on, he said, grabbing my arm. The police are freaking out. Who was it? I asked. I'd gotten a glimpse of the body, a shape under a blanket, closely guarded by the police. Someone who works here? They aren't saying, he answered. He kept hold of my forearm with his thin fingers and wrenched me away from the scene. They keep asking about a tattoo on the left knee. Tattoo? I repeated. Grace had a tattoo on her knee, Freddie muttered. Let's get out of here. I let him pull me up the hill toward the low-slung buildings of the racetrack. He was sweating, and his fingers dug into my arm. How do you know that, Freddy? I asked. Oh, boy, it's going to hit the fan. Did Grace have a tattoo on her knee? 
My voice sounded high-pitched, almost hysterical. Stop asking me, he shouted. Who ever thought it would go this far? We had reached the clubhouse, and Freddie ran off toward the office where we signed in for work. I could still feel the imprint of his thin fingers biting into my arm like steel wires. I rubbed my wrist. I had known Grace little over a month. She was five years older than I, a woman of experience in my life. Writing this story so many years later has forced me to relive a period I wanted to forget. Not all the discoveries I made that year were painful, although many were painful enough. But the memories of those blue-washed mornings, driving up a fog-strewn hill towards a view of a bay that stretched toward infinity, has stayed with me always. I had known Grace Neville. She stood like a signpost in my life, a warning. She was the woman I wished then feared to become. Although this story tells more about me than I would like, the book is for her. And then Leah, the main character, gets involved in the investigation of her friend's death. Is that right? That's correct. Could you read us that scene where she has a conversation with her cousin Joey, who's an Oakland cop and investigating the case, how they interact about this murder? Gladly. This is Joey speaking first. This is one hell of a case, he said. Try to forget that you knew this woman. Try looking at it from our point of view, okay? A woman turns up murdered. That's not unusual. Hundreds of women get murdered in Oakland every year. Most of the cases are never solved, just between you and me. This babe is nothing special. There's no money behind her. She's not well-connected. Nobody's going to pay attention, whether we find her killer or not. Murders? Two-thirds or more are committed by lovers, husbands, boyfriends. The rest are committed by creeps with a previous record. But nothing's riding on this case, Leah. I know she mattered to you. Don't look like she mattered much to anyone else. He lifted his shoulders in a gesture of helplessness at my expression. Let's not argue about it. I'm trying to explain something to you, he said. What this case is like for us. Nobody cares about this dead girl except us. We've been watching this panther Ferguson for years. We hate the guy. We think he got that cop in New York City a while back. How do you know he did it? Joey's cynicism always disturbed me. Never mind how we know. We got our sources. You can be sure of that, Joey said. He pulled a cigarette out of his shirt pocket, pushed in the car lighter. This case... We know she left Eli's Mile High Club hanging on his arm. She was dead the next day. Some reporters got hold of the story and it broke that afternoon. It looked like we had the guy at last. And then it turns out she was still alive Sunday morning. And my little cousin has to be the one who was with her. So what did she tell you about her and James Ferguson? Joey continued, lighting his cigarette. She told me they were still friends, I answered. Why does this ruin your case if you have all this other evidence against him? Your testimony is enough to make us look bad, to get this sleazeball out on bail. On top of everything else, you're my cousin. We can't even discredit you the way we'd like to. Discredit me? Thanks, Joey. 
I happen to have told the truth. He kept right on talking. Papers had the story already, how we screwed up. Panthers will milk it for all it's worth. They love to play up the bad cop routine, the OPD pigs. Makes me so angry I'd like to go out and blast them all away. So, find the killer. You don't understand, Leah, he said. Mike found a gun in the bushes. It traced back to Ferguson. We just need a little more. Okay, but shouldn't you investigate everything? She told me about other guys in her life. Maybe someone at the racetrack. There's problems, he said, more than I can possibly convey. Like what? The way she was murdered. I don't really want to subject you to this. But Joey went on. That cop, Mike, he was first on the scene. Called Alameda County Coroner's Office. He was there when they pulled the body out of the water. He told me about it. Tremendous force. Bones broken so bad they were in splinters. You only see that in crimes of passion. The papers said she had been shot. Shot, too. Execution style. A different kind of murder. Something paid killers do. They don't have an investment. Nothing personal to get even about. They just want their money. Now, an angry boyfriend, a paid killer... Only one man fits both categories, the Black Panther James Ferguson. And we may never get him now. You just heard Susan Shrell reading from her mystery story, Grace, set in the 1970s in Oakland and Berkeley and available at your local bookstores and online and at www.susanshirell.com. And that's Sherelle, H-S-H-E-R-R-E-L-L. Well, the story is getting very exciting, Susan. Can you read us the part when she starts investigating her friend's murder herself and as she goes to Grace's mother to find out about Grace's past? Yes, Grace's mother lives up in Clear Lake in a trailer, and Leah has the following conversation with her. I feel terrible about Grace, I began. Millie used to say that a wild start ends in dead stop. Guess she saw something I didn't. I was struck by her bitter tone. Grace was wild. Born wild. I can see her now, face all dirty and full of tears. Helene's blue eyes looked unfocused, as if remembering a distant past. Neighbor dragged her home. Found her in their garage. Little boys paid her a dime to touch her privates. How old was she? Oh, must have been six. I handed her over to Millie, my sister, after that. I was on the road a lot. I let her come home and stay with me sometimes. Split her time between my place and Millie's. She was at Millie's for school, though. Millie was a lot stricter than me. She used to slap Grace silly. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Millie said I was too easy on her. Were you? Couldn't raise a hand to her myself, she said. Her eyes remained unfocused, staring at her beer. Millie always said Grace would end up bad. I can still see her, mouth all streaked with lipstick, giggling out there on the back porch. Boys gave her things, rings, T-shirts, stuff like that. More fool me. I believe she was getting that stuff for free. 
Well, we're getting to know a little more here about Grace. This is Susan Shirell reading from her detective story, Grace. Then I wonder if you could now read us the part where uh, Leah, the protagonist, goes to interview her fellow uh co-worker at the racetrack where Grace, the murdered woman, also worked. Yes. And in this part, Leah actually talks to her friend Edna, an African-American woman who works at the racetrack. And this is Edna talking first. That girl was trouble when she was alive and she's more trouble now she's dead. Why do you care about any of this stuff? I feel bad about what happened to her, Edna. I liked her. I'd feel the same way about you. If something happened to you, I'd look for your killer. Edna threw her head back, her mouth open, and a beautiful yelp of laughter. Girl, she gasped, no man's ever gotten the best of me yet, and no man ever will. I'd have long since blown the guy's head to kingdom come. Search out my killer, she says. Grace Neville worked with the Black Panthers. You mean she slept with a brother, honey, Edna said. One of the baddest brothers around. It ain't the same thing. She helped out at the school. Doesn't that tell you about the kind of person she was? Tells me she did what her man told her to do, like most stupid women. Ain't nothing new about a white girl shacking up with some brother. It's been going on forever. What makes me mad is when they don't even have the guts to admit it. But you respect the Panthers, don't you, Edna? I wouldn't mess with them, if that's what you mean. Don't you believe in their goals? Goals? Girl, they're one of the biggest gangs in town. Of course I respect them for the way they stood up to those cops a few years back. That took guts. The Oakland police force was full of southern crackers. They recruited specially to get those fools. Black folks were terrified of the Oakland Police Department. To go up against those crackers, Leah, you gotta be halfway crazy. I wouldn't be messing with any of them. They do other stuff now, I said. Schools, breakfast programs. They do all that. I got a niece gets fed in that program. But don't think for a minute the white boys give a damn. They'll never forget how those Panthers started out. White boys don't play when black folks talk revolution. You just heard Susan Shirell reading from her novel, Grace. Wasn't there a song, Susan, inspired by this book? Yes, there was. Uh, Thomas McKenney, who heads up and directs the chorus, Fukani Mwetu, a local chorus, very popular, that sings songs of about South Africa and from South Africa, as well as labor, civil rights, protest songs, wrote this song when he performed at my first book party. And we're now going to hear Thomas McKinney's song, Through Grace.
ground But those very seeds of truth Start to grow To be found You just heard Thomas McKinney's song from the book Grace. Susan, do you think you could read us the next scene when uh, she goes, when when the protagonist goes into a conversation with the suspect, the Black Panther, James Ferguson, about the greater fear? Yes, the two of them are sitting in a car at Lake Merritt when this conversation takes place. They have just escaped the Oakland police. And this is James Ferguson speaking first. You know, part of being in the party is political education. In one class, they showed us a movie, an interview with a Russian soldier during World War II. Stalin had issued a decree Any soldier who ran away from the front lines would be executed immediately. This soldier was saying the decree wasn't necessary. The comrades were so appalled by the Nazis that they would make whatever sacrifice was necessary. Dying, if that's what it took. He said he feared the enemy, but the greater fear was having to face himself and his comrades if he let them down. That's how I feel. That's how the brothers and the party feel. The greater fear. I had heard this expression from Joey, but Joey had used it differently. Joey meant that Black Panthers were more afraid of their own party than they were of the police. James was looking out at the water of Lake Merritt. When I was in Houston, he continued, I got to know what that expression meant. I was with eight other comrades, winter, 1969. We were trapped inside Dowling Street headquarters, surrounded by 300 Houston pigs armed with shotguns, M-16 rifles, tear gas. Reconnaissance helicopters were buzzing above us, lighting up the sky, so we could see the light rain coming down in waves. The Houston pigs wanted to raid our office, drag us out of our sanctuary, in front of the national news camera handcuff us and take us to jail like wet, whimpering dogs. Our attorney called, said the pigs claimed they didn't need a warrant because they were pursuing robbery suspects who had run inside our headquarters. For over an hour, we watched them position themselves for the attack. Each of us was behind one of the second-story windows, protected by a sandbag. We were heavily armed, But we were no match for that army, lined up behind their patrol cars. The pigs were less than a hundred feet from our door. We could hear them load their weapons. The loudest sound was the shotguns, the deadly cracking and clicking of bullets as they slid into the chambers. When they finished loading, we stuck our M1 carbines through the peepholes of the sandbags and took aim. An old guy began to talk to us through a bullhorn. He had a real cracker drawl. He said he was the police sergeant and that all the occupants of Dowling Street should come out now with their hands up. We looked at each other. We knew it was about to go down. I asked the other eight comrades, and one was only 16 years old, what should we do? The pig came over the bullhorn again. He said we had 10 seconds to come out 
He began counting, the rain still drizzling down. We felt a silence around us. We were all in this together. We agreed to stay and shoot it out. We were ready to die that night. For us, that night, the greater fear meant a humiliating surrender in the eyes of the people who respected us. So we stayed put. You just heard Susan Shirell reading from her mystery story, Grace, set in the Oakland, Berkeley area in the 1970s. Wow, that was pretty exciting, Susan. Can you tell us about the next book reading you're going to be holding? Yes, the next book reading will be at the Lakeview branch of the Oakland Public Library. It will be on June, Saturday, June 26, from 11.30 to 1.30 p.m. Could you repeat that? Yes. Again, it's the Lakeview branch of the Oakland Public Library, 11.30 to 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, June 26th. And that's in Oakland. That's Oakland, right. Well, this has been a very Oakland half hour here. The murder set in Oakland, the novel set in Oakland, and we being right here in Berkeley, and now you're having another reading in Oakland. I want to ask you also how you started this book. I was a volunteer at the George Jackson Clinic, which is a a free clinic that was run by the Black Panthers in the 70s. I had several friends who were in the Black Panther Party, and I also knew other volunteers, heard a lot of stories, saw a lot of things, wanted to explore some of what I saw and heard. Well, it's resulted in a very exciting book. I want to thank you so much for coming, and I want to thank our listeners very much because we've been holding a fundraising drive that's been going on for three weeks and that just ended about 26 minutes ago. So for all of you who donated, I want to say Thank you on behalf of everyone here at KPFA. But you know what? We still need more money. Yes, that's the truth. We still need more money. And you can go online and donate securely at www.kpfa.org. That's www.kpfa.org. You can donate $60 and become a member. That's only $5 a month. You can donate more, as much as you can. And if right now you're broke and out of work and you can only donate 25 please do it. We'll send you a bumper sticker and you'll be part of the KPFA family with that bumper sticker as you drive around town. www.kpfa.org I want to thank you so much for listening and I want to thank Susan Shirell for being our guest. You can get her book at Laurel Bookstore, Walden Pond, Bird and Beckett in San Francisco, Books Inc. in Alameda, Marcus Books in Oakland, and you can also pick up a copy at the Oakland Library if you're out of money. Yes, you can check out a book at the Oakland Library. It's called Grace by Susan Shirell. That's S-H-E-R-R E-L. This has been Nina Serrano, and I want to thank you for listening, and thanks, Oscar, for board hopping.
fifth annual Bluegrass for the Greenbelt Festival headlines legendary country rock and bluegrass roots pioneers Chris Hillman, founding member of the Birds, and Herb Peterson, founding member of the Desert Rose Band. This fun-filled, family-friendly day features more foot-stomping bluegrass tunes from Crooked Still, The Wronglers, The Tuttle Family with A.J. Lee, Nell Robinson and Red Level, A.J. Downing and Buick Six, plus award-winning artist Lori Lewis and The Right Hands. The Bluegrass for the Greenbelt Festival is happening at the historic Dunsmore-Hillman Estate in the Oakland Hills on Saturday, June 5th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. The event is accessible by public transit with free bio-shuttle rides from BART. More information is available by phone at 415-543-6771 or visit bluegrassforthegreenbelt.org online. The festival is presented by the Greenbelt Alliance, the Bay Area's advocate for open spaces and vibrant places for over 50 years. This festival is a benefit for the Greenbelt Alliance. 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa 